So good. So today, uh, I, I want to go a little deeper. Uh, who was here last Sunday? Who was here last Sunday? Amazing. Would that bless anyone? Yes. So I want to I dive a little deeper into last Sunday because I feel like it was really significant and it set the stage, but I want to really hammer this thing in. And uh, last Sunday, if you weren't here to give you some context, we dove into Luke 24, which is the story of the road to Emmaus. You guys know that story? The, the story of the road to Emmaus. And this is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Jesus rose from the grave. And there's these two men. One we know, his name is Cleopas. Can you say Cleopas? His name was Cleopas and his friend. They're, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're, they're leaving the moment they were waiting for. Jesus was, was in their mind, not who they thought he was. He was crucified. He died. And so they're leaving. It says in Luke 24 that they were downcast. They were walking away from what they thought was their promise. And they were leaving to a little place called Emmaus. But little did they know that Jesus was no longer in the grave. He was alive. And in this moment, as they're walking along the path, Jesus just randomly shows up. And Jesus starts walking with them. And he said, why are you guys downcast? What are you talking about? And, you know, they have this moment where they're like, do you not know? Or the only person in all Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened. And it says in scripture that they were kept from recognizing him. And so the journey... It says in scripture, it's, it's seven miles, which in a walking pace, if you got good legs, right? It's like two and a half hours. So they're walking for approximately two and a half hours, maybe more, but the entire time they did not recognize Jesus. The entire time they heard him, it says that he actually opened up the scriptures and revealed to them who he was. That from Genesis all the way throughout the Old Testament, it's pointing to this person named Jesus. And the entire time they still did not recognize him. In that moment, it's like, man, that's kind of crazy. Like, how did they miss him? Because what we know later on, they eventually when they recognize who Jesus is, they actually go and they find the disciples. And for them to know where the disciples were hiding, they had to be pretty close to the disciples. So these weren't just some random nobodies. They followed Jesus. They saw him do miracles. They, they, they knew of his ministry. They knew of his teaching, but yet they still had a distorted view of who God was. And so when God showed up, they were unable to recognize him. And we think about how crazy that is, yet we do that all the time. Some of y'all did that today. <laughs> God was in the room. But some of us weren't able to recognize him. And so let's go to Luke 24. The end of that story, they finished their journey and Jesus is about to keep walking. It's nighttime. And it says that they actually constrained him. They begged him to stay the night. They, they begged him to stay with them because there was something about his exposition of scripture that moved them. There was something about this man, yet they didn't fully know who he was yet. There was something about his presence, his voice, his countenance. There was something about him that their heart was hungry for him to remain. And so what happens in Luke 24, to set the stage, it says this. He ended up staying with them, and when he was at the table, he took bread. This is a Jewish tradition of Thanksgiving. Before the meal, the host takes the bread and breaks it. And if you weren't here last week, the crazy context of this is the host is the one in charge of doing this. The host is the one in charge of breaking the bread, yet in this moment, the guest is the one that takes over. 
And we know that when Jesus comes in as the guest, he takes over as the host. So he takes over, he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he begins to give it to them. It says this in verse 31, then, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. The word recognize here in Greek means to perceive, to understand, or to know. So last week we defined that to see God means to know God. To see God, because we can't see God with our physical eyes, but to see God means to know God. And when I say this, I'm not saying just to know about God, because this was their, their fault, that they, they knew scriptures. Jesus was literally explaining it to them, yet they still missed it. They knew facts. It says that that morning, the woman told them, right, Mary Magdalene, went to the tomb, she encountered Jesus and she told them, but they didn't take her account. They didn't take what she said. Her facts wasn't enough. Information and facts and even scripture apart from the illumination of the spirit is not enough to recognize him, to truly know him, to know him relationally and to know him intimately. And so this journey that Jesus walked with these two men was the journey of taking them from people that didn't know him to people that now finally recognize and knew this is the Messiah. I love in verse 32, we, we all know this. When he disappeared, it says they looked at, looked at each other and they asked one another, were not our hearts burning? Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Why were their hearts not burning? Jesus' presence was there. But it doesn't matter if he's there if you don't know him. Why were their hearts not burning? Maybe it was their disappointment. Maybe it was their failed expectations. Maybe they just had bad theology of who Jesus was. How could they be so close to him yet not know who he was? So today, I wanna flip the script. I wanna ask you the question. What is in the way that is keeping us from truly knowing him? What is in the way that is keeping us from truly knowing him? Let's go to John 20, 19 to 20. This is about eight days later from Jesus' appearance to Cleopas and his companion. And eight days later, he appears now to the disciples. And I love this story read out of the message translation. It says this, later on that day, the disciples had gathered together, but were fearful of the Jews. And so they locked all the doors in the house. The disciples, eight days after Jesus is already living and walking and out of the grave, they, they're still hiding out of fear. They don't wanna get persecuted. They don't wanna get captured. They don't want what happened to Jesus to happen to them. And so they're hiding in fear. It says here, it's very specific. All the doors were locked in the house. And it says this, Jesus entered. 
Jesus entered and stood among them and said, peace to you. Then he showed them his hands in his side. I love this because locked doors didn't stop Jesus. That he just walked straight through the walls and he appeared in the room. You guys catch that? He walked straight through the walls and he appeared in the room. And I want this imagery to stamp in your minds. Everyone, I want this imagery to stamp in your minds that even though the doors are locked, he can walk through the barriers and meet with you. Even though your heart is so cold and turned off from God, and even if you feel like you're stuck in your trauma and you're stuck in yesterday's unforgiveness, he doesn't even have to break the wall. He can just walk through it. And so today's sermon is called The Walls in the Way. The Walls in the Way. And so today I want to equip us to identify the walls that often get in the way from us truly knowing Jesus. Because here's the thing, guys, you can't heal from a disease, a disease you don't know you have. You can't heal from a disease that you don't know you have in our inability to see Jesus. Maybe you're here last Sunday and you were like moved and you're like, that was so powerful. I, I wanna know Jesus, but maybe you live this week and you're still stuck in your cycles and you still felt distant from God and you still felt disconnected from God. And, and I want you to know that our inability to see Jesus actually has nothing to do with his inability to not be close. If God feels distant, I want to remind you, if you're a believer, you're in Christ. You're as close to him as you'll ever be. So our inability to see Jesus has nothing to do with his distance or his inability to be close. Or, or maybe we're singing holy and you're like, I'm too sinful. I, I don't want to approach God. I don't feel worthy to approach God. That his distance has nothing to do with him. He's not pulling away but it's our inability to allow him and invite him to walk through our walls and bears that keep us on the other side of the closed door. So you guys ready to dive in? We're going after Goliath's head today. So today I wanna to talk about three walls that get in the way. Three walls that get in the way. If you are hungry to know and see Jesus and for his presence to be real and active in your life, if that's you, shout, shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out. If you are hungry for him to be real and near and to know him, we need to identify these walls. So wall number one, you ready? Wall number one is sin. <laughs> wall number one is sin. Genesis 2, 17 says this, but you must not eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will certainly what? Die. If you do, you will certainly die. Romans 6.23 says that the wages or the result or price of sin is death. Now what's interesting in Genesis 2.17, we obviously know Adam and Eve, they eat of this fruit. Yet what happens? They didn't instantly die. They eventually did. But in when they ate of the fruit of good and evil, they didn't instantly die, but they spiritually died. 
because sin creates a spiritual death within us. I love this line when Jesus is resurrected and he meets Mary. He says, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Here's the thing is that death isn't the opposite of life. It's simply the absence of it. Death actually isn't a competitor to life. It's actually simply the opposite of life. And so when sin is active in us, we begin to live void of the life that he purchased for us to have and sin becomes a wall in the way. Tyler Stanton, he says this, that the Bible calls sin desire channeled through the wrong means. Sin is shorthand for any attempt to meet our deep needs for our own resource. So I wanna paint this picture that when we were born, we were born into a nature of sin because of Adam. We've inherited Adam's nature. We see this in scripture. And so sin now becomes our default. If there's any computer geeks in the room, right? This is your operating system. Sin is now our operating system as Christians that our natural inclination is to crave what is actually going to result in death. It's to crave what's gonna feed and satisfy our flesh. And this is why the cross is so significant. But before we get to that, we see here that sin is the response. If you're a believer and you're still struggling with sin in your life, sin is the response to trying to fulfill a deep longing in your own strength that only God is meant to fill. If you are trying to satisfy a deep longing within yourself that only God is meant to satisfy, then we end up missing the opportunity to experience life and we settle for a counterfeit. So first thing we need to understand about sin is sin distorts how we see God. Sin distorts how we see God. This is why Adam and Eve hid after they sinned because how they saw God was distorted. Think about this. They were walking with God in the cool of the day, it says in Genesis, that they had full communion, full access to love and life and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, all the fruits of the spirit. But when sin entered the picture, it distorted how they saw God. So they hid. God was no longer safe. God was no longer safe. And so they hid out of fear of punishment. So let me ask you a question. When they sinned, did God change in the relationship or did they change? Did God remove himself from the picture and say, figure it out, clean yourself up, meet me on the other side of Eden? Did God change his proximity or did they change? When you fall into sin, God doesn't change his proximity, you do. And we see this because in the story, we see God eventually starts calling out to them. Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? So this is why we need to become the, aware of the barrier of sin in our lives. How to identify if actions and thoughts are sin 
Is it fueled by unbelief? It says in scripture that anything that is not done in faith is sin. Is it fueled by unbelief? Is it fueled by independence? Is it fueled by rebellion? And is it fueled by fear? I'm gonna say that again. How to identify if an action thought is sin. Obviously we see lists in scripture, but at its core is this thought and action fueled by unbelief. Is it fueled by independence? Is it fueled by rebellion? Or is it fueled by fear? And I want you to hear this, that becoming aware of your sin is not an accusation, simply a diagnosis. When God says, come and confess your sins to me, he already knows. <laughs> he already saw it coming. It's, it's not about being accused, it's about being diagnosed. Right? It's naming the disease that gets in the way of us knowing God, becoming free, whole, and live according to our design. Is it fear? Is it pride? Is it lust? Is it self-hatred? Is it false humility? Eugene Peterson, he says this quote that I love. He says, God deals, God does not deal with sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ of mice or mice in the attic. God does not deal with sin by amputation, leaving us crippled, holiness on a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving. And when he forgives, there's more of us, not less. When he forgives, the real you starts to come to the surface. Life starts to fill you up because death is simply the absence. During worship, I, I heard the Lord say that I wanna come in as a gentle surgeon today. I wanna come in as a gentle surgeon. Romans 6, says this, but now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. This is a powerful scripture. So I want you to hear this. Not only did Jesus forgive you and pay the price of your sin, he also removed the power of sin. If your phone is at 0% battery, does it have power? No, it's dead. Before the cross, sin was like a phone that always stayed charged. <laughs> but the cross did it, it removed the plug which means sin only has power when we plug it back in, when we reconnect it. The Galatians 5 says this, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. That when we realize that sin actually has no power over us, that the cross paid and suck the power out of sin, that when sin is active, it's only because we're feeding it. <laughs> we're feeding the flesh instead of walking in the spirit. That we have to have a renewed mind of what his sacrifice actually accomplished. Because listen to this. I want to read Romans 6.22 again, because this is so key. It says, but now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. You're no longer slaves to unrighteousness. You're no longer slaves to sin. You are slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. What does this show us? that you were born with a default nature of sin. 
but because of the cross, you now have a default nature for righteousness. You actually have a default nature for holiness. That even if you end up sinning, your default nature actually hungers to want to be holy, not to hide from the one who is holy. That your default nature is actually, I want to be as close to Jesus that I don't want anything to separate me. This becomes your default nature. But here's the thing, you're hearing me, you're like, that's cool, but that doesn't make sense to me. This is why you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it comes down to this, you either believe this is true or it's not. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say, now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in life. Then this is actually the truth in which we live in light of not our experience. So I want to ask you, do you believe that your sin has more power or his blood does? Because you're either living and believing that, man, I'm stuck in this. I'll never get free of this. And are you actually magnifying the power of sin or are you magnifying the power of the blood? We magnify the power of the blood. So we gotta tear that wall down. We gotta let the Holy Spirit renew us and allow this new nature, right? Your new creation to start to grow up in us. The second wall, you ready for this? The second wall that comes between us and knowing Jesus is shame. The first is sin, the second is shame. Genesis 3.8 says this then, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They were in access and proximity to his presence yet they hid from the Lord God among the trees. They were in proximity to his presence. He was in the room yet they still were able to hide. Guys, when you come here on a Sunday, God's presence can be in the room. That doesn't stop you from hiding. That <laughs> doesn't stop you from hiding behind your fig leaves, which actually symbolize self-righteousness. Jesus curses the fig leaf, the fig tree. That you cover yourself in your self-righteousness. Well, my, my right standing with God is based on what I do or I don't do. So when I don't do the right thing, then I'm not right with God. But if I do the right thing and I have to maintain doing the right thing, then I'll be right from God. That's self-righteousness. So one of the main things that results from sin is a fruit of shame. And this is why shame is so demonic. <laughs> is that shame is one of the main things that keep us stuck in the cycle of sin because it actually takes the focus off of him and onto ourselves. The enemy knows if he can take your eyes off of him, then you'll keep magnifying your sin and you'll stop magnifying his blood. That if God is where we find freedom, then if we hide from God, if we never present our true selves to him, then we'll never receive freedom. My friend, it was said this line that I love. He says that, that God is the shower. 
When we're dirty, we feel like we have to clean ourselves up, hide from God, you know, repent, repent, do all these things. Then God will come near you. But no, God is actually the shower. God is the place that you actually get clean. God is the place that you actually get set free. God is the place that you actually become pure. Then in Genesis 3, 9 to 11, a few verses after Adam and Eve hid, and it says, and the Lord God called out to man, where are you? The Lord God called out to them, where are you? Esau, where are you? Nathan, where are you? Diana, where are you? Todd, where are you? Ben, where are you? Nick, where are you? He's calling out, where are you? It's interesting because obviously God can see them. God's not unaware of their hiddenness. God is not unaware of their shame, yet he invites them. Where are you? He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. This is Adam. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, right? Fear and shame will keep you hidden because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that that's who you were? Who told you that that's what you're like? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat? And I want you to hear this. God does not want you to sin because he's just a stickler and he's a rule keeper and he's religious. He doesn't want you to sin because sin is what separates you. Sin is what keeps you hidden. Sin is what keeps you bound. He hates sin because sin distorts how you see him. So this is why sin should not be tolerated. So, Sin distorts how we see God. You ready for this? But shame distorts how we think God sees us. I'll say this again. Sin distorts how we see God, how we know God, but shame then distorts how we think God sees us. That shame causes us to hide. Shame is the belief that as a result of our sin and mistakes, we're no longer worthy, we're no longer loved, we no longer have value. Yet in the garden, God shows us the opposite, that in the midst of their sin, he calls out to them, he pursues them, he catches them in their shame, and he asks them a question, who told you? He's saying, did you believe the lie? Because that's not what I said about you. And I love this phrase that he says, where are you? That where are you is an invitation for him to come close. Oh, I know you're right there behind the trees holding your fig leaves. I know you're right there, but you're hiding. It doesn't matter if I'm face to face with you. You already have a distorted view of who I am. And so when he calls out and says, Adam, where are you? It's an invitation to come out of hiding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you guys didn't get that. That was so good. <laughs> when he says, where are you? is an invitation for you to come out of hiding. To come out without the focus on your righteousness. But to start focusing on his. 
When he says, where are you? It's also him saying that shame is not how he sees us. John 8, seven to 11. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. You guys know that story? Yes, maybe. Most of us know this story. The Pharisees catch this woman in adultery. And what's crazy is a lot of commentaries have said for them to capture, they're probably watching, which means they're participating in sin. And so they catch her, they bring her to Jesus, and this is their moment to, to try to trump Jesus's knowledge and try to trump who Jesus is. And so they start to elevate the law and they start saying, hey, the law says if you're caught in adultery, then you should be stoned. And so they kept questioning him, verse seven, and he straightened up and said to them, this is Jesus's response. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away and leave one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman standing there. Verse 10 says, Jesus straightened up, asked her woman, where are they? <laughs> Has no one condemned you? She says this, no one, sir. Jesus responds, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That living free from shame and condemnation breaks the cycle and empowers us to live a life free from sin. And in this story, I always, I always get caught up with the fact when Jesus asks her this question, who here condemns you? Because the fact is, as they're walking away, they're probably still condemning her in their minds. But in this moment, as Jesus is stooping down, looking at her in the middle of her shame, and he looks at her face, he says, who here condemns you? And it was at the moment that she saw his face that she realized no one does. It's the moment that she saw that this man is not any ordinary man, but not only did he catch me in this moment? The way he's looking at me is different. He's not looking at me with shame. He's not looking at me with anger. He's not looking at me with frustration that in his eyes are actually fueled with fire and passion and love for his creation to know him and be redeemed. And it's at that moment that she saw his face. She realized no one does. No one does. And in that moment, Jesus could have said anything. He just said, okay, now go to the synagogue, read the Torah, memorize it, start evangelizing, start doing your daily devotionals, do this, do this, do this. But it's actually at the moment that Jesus knew this is the key to breaking sin, is breaking off shame and condemnation. If I can break the cycle, the cycle ends here. And so it's in breaking off shame and condemnation that we actually break out of the cycle that keeps us stuck.
Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That if you are in Christ, there is now no more condemnation. Genesis 3, 21, let's go there. You guys okay? Can I give you a really cool theological moment that not a lot of people know or miss? So after Adam and Eve hid, Jesus called out to them. In Genesis 3.21, it says this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. For God to do this, he had to make a sacrifice. For him to make garments of skin from an animal, he had to sacrifice the animal. This is the first moment of atonement. We see even in the garden, God was showing us there is going to be someone else that would cover your sin, that would cover your sin, that would take your place. That we don't become free from sin and shame through our own efforts and righteousness, but through the sacrifice of another. So I want to encourage you guys in moments where shame tries to creep in or you fall into a moment of sin, instead of hiding behind the wall in fear, invite him to walk through it. Invite him to walk through it. You guys ready for the third and last one? <laughs> it's going to be a fun one. We talked about the wall of sin, the wall of shame. Is this starting to shake people a little bit. They're starting to hear the chains fall a little bit, loosen up. I just want you guys to be free. Because here's the thing, guys. Jesus says, this is eternity. Not a destination. Not an action. This, this is eternity to simply know him and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. We all crave for eternity. Ecclesiastes says that he set eternity in the hearts of men, that we long for eternity, but guys, eternity is not a place. Eternity is a person. And everything that you long for to be fulfilled and set free in eternity is found in the person. And so when we talk about, man, there are barriers between you and knowing God. This is not some religion, Christianese thing. This is saying there is a barrier between you and eternity. There is a barrier between you and freedom. There is a barrier between you and healing. And so instead of hiding and staying and glorifying and decorating and enjoying that wall that you've built up, it's time to say, Jesus, come and walk through it. So the third wall, say, I'm ready, is oppression. The third wall is demonic oppression. Can I talk about it? Genesis 3, 1 to 6. 
says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals of the Lord God and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? So he starts to distort what God says and sounds like. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, he may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, excuse me, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, oh man, how often when temptation comes, you're like, ah, oh, just, just one, one dose, just one moment. I just, I just want that serotonin kick. I, just, I want that high. I want that sense of fulfillment. The enemy is saying, oh, you're not going to die. <laughs> oh, it's going to make you feel good. Don't worry, he'll forgive you. But you will, but you just let something in. He will, but you just gave access to the enemy. He will forgive you, but you opened the door. So he says, oh, you will not die. <laughs> the serpent said, for God knows that when we eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, that you will now be able to define good and evil. Heard a theologian once say that the, the knowledge and good of evil, why God did not want them to eat of this tree and why this, this was the thing that caused sin to usher in is because when they ate from the tree, the desire was now to define what was good and evil in their own light. Wow. That they wanted to define what is good, what is not good, what is sin and what is not sin through their own perspective rather than God's. And man, are we seeing that right now? For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, that's how he gets you. He makes it look pleasing. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some, ate it, and then she shared it. <laughs> Sin always spreads. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So when we experience oppression, I want you to get this. It's when we come into agreement with a demonic lie. That we understand that Christians can't be possessed, which implies ownership, but they can be oppressed, which means to be under the influence of the devil and evil spirits. To paint an example for this, I want you to think about, has anyone had an ant infestation in their home? Just her? All right, good. Our last house, we had a horrible ant infestation. No matter what, it's kept coming back. It was in our kitchen. It was just, it was the worst. Now, the same thing that happens with evil spirits or, or demons, can we talk about this? Is... Just like the ant infestation, they don't own the home, but they're in the home. They don't own the home, but they have access to the home. So when we talk about oppression, specifically as a Christian, we're not talking about, you know, the exorcist and your eyes rolling back, back of your head and, you know, you start shaking, which, you know, sometimes that can happen. But it's saying you've actually given access for something to stay. And this is what happens, listen, is we start to leave crumbs out. Let, let me just, let me crack the door a little bit. Let me just leave. I, I, I made a mistake and I, I left some crumbs. 
We see that the Bible says that the devil seeks to devour believers. This is 1 Peter 5.8. That Satan and his demons scheme, they strategize against Christians. This is Ephesians 6.11. And if a Christian allows demons to succeed in these attacks, then it will result in oppression. And demonic oppression is when a demon is temporarily victorious over a Christian through making them agree with a lie or successfully tempting them to sin. That if a Christian continues to allow demonic oppression in their life, the oppression can increase to a point that that demon has a very strong influence over Christians' thoughts and behaviors and even their view of God and their view of themselves. So not only did Eve disobey God, she listened to the enemy. When she listened, you know what she did? She handed over her authority. She actually submitted herself to that voice. But I want to encourage you guys that the enemy can't separate you from God. Only you can. (laughs) It's like good news, bad news, right? That the enemy cannot separate you from God, only you can. If you are in Christ, you are bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. You are one with him. You have complete union with God. But the enemy wants you to believe that you don't. And when you agree with that, then you start living like that. And so the enemy's number one tactic is to keep children of God bound through believing lies about who God is and who you are. And he tries to get you to to submit to his voice over the father's voice. And when we agree with his voice, he can then keep us in the cycles of sin and shame. Do you see how this is all just a cycle of empowering one another? Sin empowers shame and shame opens a door and oppression comes in and oppression keeps feeding the sin and the sin then comes making you stay stuck in shame. The shame leaves the door wide open and the oppression comes and the oppression makes you to keep sinning and you keep sinning and then you get stuck in shame and you get stuck in shame and the oppression is just welcomed and it keeps going. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, can we put that up? 2 Corinthians 3, or 10, 3 to 5, it says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. I wanna, can I, can I bring scriptures so you don't think I'm crazy? If you've never heard that this is real, you need to hear that this is real. And before I get into this, this is not to bring fear, but this is to empower us. Because scripture says that we are in a spiritual war and you can live a Christian life Without the spiritual gifts, you can totally do it. You can live the Christian life completely unaware that there is a spiritual realm and you can do your devos and do nice things and have your Bible studies and go on with your life. What happens is if we don't have a biblical framework that we live in a spiritual war, then we'll always be on the defense, never on the offense. Yeah, you can live without the spiritual gifts, totally. You can be saved without the spiritual gifts, but you'll always be on the defense, not on the offense. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty, 
opinion, raised against the knowledge, here it is, that is raised against knowing God. And so we have to take every thought captive to obey Christ. But I need to remind you that not every thought is your thought. Not every thought is your thought. If you've ever been driving and you randomly have that thought, man, I should just drive over this cliff. So you don't have that. I've had that. Maybe it's just me. We've had that. Not every thought is your thought. Okay? But what happens when we agree with a thought, it then becomes a reality to us. Well, he's going to set people free today. So we have to take every thought that comes against the knowledge of who Christ is and submit it to him. Well, God's not like that. That comes against the knowledge of who he is. Oh, well, you need to, to keep punishing yourself because of your mistake that comes against the knowledge of Christ. Submit that, take that captive and submit it to him. Colossians 2.15, it says this, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And so on the cross, Jesus disarmed the enemy and spiritual powers in opposition to us. That Satan and his demons were actually defeated 2,000 years ago. But in our ignorance and unbelief, we re-empower a disarmed enemy. That Jesus disarmed the enemy, but listen, the enemy still has a mouth. And his words only have power over us if we receive them as truth. And so just as Jesus removed the power of sin, we can still re-empower it. In the same way, he also disarmed the enemy and spiritual powers, but we can still rearm them when we come into agreement with them. Not every thought is your thought. I want to say this, that the enemy can't walk through walls, but he can walk through open doors. He can't walk through walls, but he can walk through open doors. Ephesians 4.27 says this, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not do it. That a foothold is essentially an access point. Do not give him an access point. The context in Ephesians 4.27 is about anger. Do not anger in your sin because when you allow anger to not be resolved, you actually give the enemy an access point. It's not just anger, it's shame. The list can go on. So sin that we allow to become active in our lives become an open door for the enemy and evil spirits to bring oppression. That shame that we dwell on become an open door the enemy and for, and for evil spirits. And so when we believe a lie, offense that's not checked, unforgiveness, which is a huge one, a spirit of religion, et cetera, et cetera, we give the enemy an access point. So why don't I break this down? First Thessalonians, I'm giving you guys a lot. Are you guys okay? First Thessalonians says that we're body, soul, and spirit. So you have a body, you have a soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions, and you have a spirit. That before Jesus, your spirit was dead, just like Adam, spiritually died. But when you receive Jesus, it says in uh, Romans 8, that our spirit cries out to his spirit, Abba, Father. And our spirit actually becomes one with his, the Holy Spirit. This is how you are in Christ. So the enemy cannot touch your spirit because your spirit is perfect and it's holy and it's pure. But your soul 
and your body is still being renewed to what he did in your spirit. That's called sanctification, which means he can't touch your spirit, but he can touch your soul, your body. He can touch your mind and your wills and your emotions. Can I share a really crazy story with you guys? I need your permission because it's really crazy. So if you say yes, you're accountable because you say yes. So do you want to hear this crazy story? Okay. You said it, so don't blast me on the internet. Um, but my wife, she, she did inner healing, for, inner, inner healing ministry for a couple of years, and she shared this story with me that was just one of the craziest stories I've ever heard, but it, it, it makes all this come to light and see how simple this thing starts. So she was leading someone else through inner healing. This person uh, was probably in their 50s or 60s. So they, were, they were a lot older, and they struggled with constant fear and anxiety. No matter what, she just, she, she couldn't shake it off. And so they're, they're doing inner healing, they're praying, they're asking the Lord, you know, illuminate the root, where did it start? And it started at this one moment when she's a child, probably eight, eight years old, maybe younger. And it was in this moment, this is, this is where it gets crazy. She wakes up and she sees a demon and the demon speaks to her and says, if you don't lick the bottom of your shoe, your whole house is gonna burn down, your family's gonna die. Super weird, right? She hears this demon say this. You know what she does? She licks her shoe. And it seems so simple, but in that moment, she actually made an agreement with an evil spirit. And because of that, 60 years old, she never broke that agreement. Think about for decades upon decades upon decades that that thing is empowered. It's fed. Man, you're giving it T-bone steaks every day. A moment of fear comes in and you, you feed the fear. You, you give it a three-course meal <laughs> and it starts to get bigger and it creates what the Bible calls a stronghold where the enemy now has a fortress built in your mind. And to break that fortress, you can't just say, in Jesus' name, take it away. You've actually allowed this thing for 60 years to have residence. <laughs> the same way that we say God comes where he's welcome, demons come where they're welcomed. And so... In this moment, they're doing inner healing and they finally get to a point where they're like, okay, we need to break agreement with this lie and we need to repent and turn from the Lord. Not repenting because I'm a bad person, but I'm repenting for coming into agreement from a lie that's opposed to God. But the problem was she couldn't do it. They tried, they kept praying and she's like, I, I just can't do it. I, I don't think I need to do it. It doesn't make sense. Why is it my fault? I was a little girl. Why do, why do I have to repent? And why do I have to break this agreement? And the sad thing is that wasn't her speaking. 60 years, it was fed. And it's not gonna just come out like that. But it actually beckons our heart and our will to sever it. So I'm gonna end here because we got a lot to do. Just to plow through some scripture, 1 Timothy 4.1 says, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. It's in there. James 4, 7 to 8, it says this, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why would you have to resist the devil if you weren't gonna be attacked? 
Why would you have to resist the devil if it's all just under the blood and you can just be on autopilot? Submit yourselves, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, right? There is a response. It says you double-minded, right? You are in the world, but you're also trying to live in the kingdom. So I want to give you five ways based off James 4 of how do we break off demonic oppression in our lives. You guys ready? Say I'm ready if you're ready. How do we break off demonic oppression in our lives based off James 4? First thing is that we have to break any agreements with lies and submit ourselves fully to Jesus. That when we come into agreement with something that isn't God, we actually submit ourselves to it just like Eve did. So we have to break any agreement with lies, submit ourselves fully to Jesus. Number two, use your authority and the sword of the spirit to resist the devil. Do you know that Jesus says that I have given you authority to cast out demons? You have received the same authority that Jesus has. Uh, I heard John Bevere explain it this way. Oftentimes when we're experiencing spiritual attack, we'll say, God, just take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. And I gave this example. If there was a war overseas and the military was overseas and they're having a war, and if they call the president and be like, hey, president, can you come help us and send something? What would the president say? Use your guns, right? You've been equipped. You have the weapons. Fight back. Or you've been given the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. To resist the devil. The third thing is push past the shame and choose to come into his presence, right? Come near to God and he will come near to you. This isn't because God is far away, but if God is far away, in you, he'll always be far away out of you. And so when you realize, wait, I need to come near to God, you start to realize he was there the whole time. The fourth thing is remove any temptations. It says, wash your hands. <laughs> remove any temptations and stop dabbling with sin. Stop playing with it. Stop playing the game. God, is this sin or not sin? If you have to ask, just don't do it. The fifth thing, just purify your hearts. Allow the blood and forgiveness of Jesus to wash over you. To wash over. I have a ministry team in the back. You guys can head over. I'm going to wrap up John 20, 19 to 20. Like we read at the beginning. And read again. It says, later on that day, the disciples had gathered together, but fearful of the Jews, had locked all the doors in the house. And Jesus entered, stood among them and said, peace to you. Then he showed them his hands and his sides. So to wrap this all up in Luke 24, right? The end of the story of the road to Emmaus where Jesus breaks the bread. That moment we talked last Sunday, the revelation was they finally saw his scars. And John 20, it was, it was this action that Jesus did that revealed who he really, uh, who really, who he really was. He was showing them his scars. So I want you to hear this as we conclude this message that every wall and every barrier between you fully knowing Jesus is removed through seeing the weight of his sacrifice. It's by applying his blood over your sin, your shame, and your oppression. And so today, guys, we're going to allow Jesus to walk through the walls. Have keys come up. Today, we're going to allow the King of Glory to come in 
and bring freedom. Give keys. So this is what we're gonna do. I'm gonna have everyone stand up. So we've got 20 minutes, <laughs> 20 minutes. So I wanna encourage you guys, don't waste this time. This is what we're gonna do. Proverbs 28, 13, it says this, it says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses, I love this, and renounces them, find mercy. Whoever hides their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces it finds mercy. Jesus. Whenever in the room, just close your eyes. I want you to engage with Jesus. Jesus, right now, you want freedom in every heart in this room more than they do. You want freedom in every heart more than I do. And Lord, we say, walk through the walls. Walk through the walls. Walk through the wall of sin. Walk through the wall of shame. Walk through the wall of oppression. If you need freedom, I want you to shout, walk through the walls. Jesus, walk through the walls. Jesus, walk through the walls. Jesus, walk through the walls. Come in. Come in. Lord, I'm done wasting my life away in bondage. I'm done allowing shame to trample me. I'm, I'm done allowing the pain and offense of yesterday to keep me bound from tomorrow. God, I'm done and I'm drawing the line. I'm saying, come and walk through the walls. This is where it starts. As we respond to his invitation that says, where are you? And we actually have to face that wall that's in the way. We actually have to face that barrier so we know where he needs to walk into. We gotta be specific. Whatever that wall is, if it's pornography, if it's lust, if it's addiction, if it's homosexuality, if it's unforgiveness, if it's bitterness, substance abuse, whatever it is, Jesus is in the room and he wants to set you free. Don't waste this moment. Don't waste this moment. Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Not yesterday, not tomorrow. Right now is the day for deliverance, for freedom, and for healing. So this is what we're gonna do. If you need healing and deliverance, I want you to get on your knees. I want you to get on your knees. I want you to humble yourself before the Lord. Submit yourself to the Lord. Come on, don't let sin and shame keep you bound. Don't let sin and shame keep you bound. And right now, I just want you just to start talking to the Lord. 
and then start confessing in your heart God I, I give you this I give you this issue I give you this thing that has plagued me I give this to you and start to renounce it and start to say Lord I break the agreement that I've made with this lie the lie that you're not beautiful the lie that you need to hate yourself the lie that you're not worthy the lie that you'll never be healed the lie that you're gonna be stuck in this issue and this addiction this lie that says God is angry and distant. The lie that says that you are not worth being restored. Start to renounce that lie and break that agreement right now in Jesus' name. Give it to him. 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 And for the next 15 minutes, what I want you guys to do is stay in that posture. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to him and wash your hands.